hey this is jane and just before we get into this episode i want to remind you all about the great stuff on our website at www.worldofwork.io over there you can check out our online seminar program the workshops we run as well as our coaching and all the other podcasts we've recorded so that's www.worldofwork.io now on to this episode So here we are again with another episode of a World of Work podcast, and we're doing something a little bit different today. We're actually going to have a guest host who's going to be leading us all the way through today's episode, and we're going to be talking about a specific topic that's really of interest to them. Our guest host for today is going to be uh, Shola. Um, Shola, before we sort of hand over to you to guest host, what is it that that you're going to be speaking about, and what's your background, and why are you interested in this subject? Thanks, James. I think today is going to be a really amazing episode uh, regards to racism in the workplace. Um, of course, due to recent events in the world that we're living in, uh, of course, it has an impact in the workplace uh, and how we can actually contribute, uh, whether you're black, whether you're white, uh, and create a bubble where um, there is no colour in, in the workplace. And of course, to promote uh, black professionals in the workplace. Uh, and as a subtopic as well, where I'm really passionate about is uh, the lack of black men in HR. So those are the two uh, topics that we'll like to, well, I'd like to discuss today with uh, a woman who has uh, a vast experience in diversity named Shanti Bentildu. Uh, so she's currently a, a diversity and inclusion expert. So she'll be joining the platform today and we'll have a positive uh, discussion. That's great. That sounds really, really exciting. And um. You said that one of the areas that you're interested in is, uh, you know, black men in HR. What's your experience? Uh, you know, you clearly work in, in HR yourself as, as a black man. What's your sort of background in that area? And, and um, have you worked with other black men on, on your journey so far? Well, I've worked in HR for a number of years now. And um, no, let's, let's take an example based on my university and my education days and my master's uh, in particular. I was a room full of, a lecture full of people of probably 100 to 200 people, which varies. And I never saw a black man in the class, so to speak. You did have black men who studied organizational development, which is not HR precisely. But of course, it was a misrepresentation of what HR was, you know, in that sort of environment. But never really dawned on me per se. But of course, now that I'm in the position that I'm in and, and the function that I attend, it's hard for me to come across black men in HR across every uh, role within HR. He's a HR admin, assistant, generalist, a senior role. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's quite hard for me to rub shoulders with uh, someone who looks like me. <laughs> uh, that's so interesting. And, and I'm clear about some of it you want to work, work towards as well. Um, yeah. Okay, well, let us leave it there and let's jump into the conversation and uh, hand over the reins to you. So hopefully uh, our audience could grab a coffee, tea, get some biscuits. Actually, no, tea kind of hot for this kind of weather. So get a chill drink, sit back, whether in your car, whether you're at home, uh, and enjoy this discussion because it'd be a really good one. Right, ladies and gentlemen, what we will be focused on today is HR and racism in the workplace. And we have uh, the amazing Ashanti Bentildu, if I got that name right. Yeah, you have. <laughs> Her background is in law and finance. Uh, she also has an illustrious career in events and hospitality and of course is a DNI officer and she's put together this workshop that really I want, what I want to get into shortly because it's really interesting uh, which is 100 white women teaching and improving diversity strategies. Um, so yeah welcome and welcome to this podcast Shanti. How are you today? 
I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me. You make me sound a lot more interesting than I actually am. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think your background is definitely needed with regards to diversity and inclusion because it it has become a buzzword. I really appreciate you coming on to this uh, discussion Mm. today and uh, covering uh, quality content. So let me start off with this. Um, What does racism in the workplace look like for you? Uh, what is your own understanding? Sure. I mean, in that context, what we're really talking about is, uh, first of all, the processes and systems and structures that exist that were not really originally designed for anyone other than, and especially if we're talking about within the, let's say, British context, uh, the workplace was not designed for anyone other than white males, to be quite frank. So that's its initial concept and design down to the temperature of offices, the height of desks and chairs. Um, So what we see is that those processes, systems and structures essentially are not accommodating or even, uh, what's the word, inclusive of any other group of people, any other gender, much less race, uh, sexuality or, or background. So this is the way the workplace was originally designed. So when we talk about racism in the workplace, initially and you know at its very core, we're talking about the foundation, the system, the processes and the structures. And then further on from that, when we start to flesh out those bones, now we're dealing with ideas, beliefs and attitudes of individuals in those workplace structures when we talk about racism at work. Do you think that is ingrained into the culture of the organisation? Unfortunately, a lot of these systems and processes have been around, as I say, since the beginning of work. And so, of course, by proxy, people adopt the attitudes and beliefs uh, that they are inducted into. And also, when you add the fact that we're all just human beings and that on a daily basis, you know, depending on our upbringing and background and environment, we do bring our own beliefs and ideas into the workplace. It's very, you know it's very uncommon for people to literally lead two separate lives in terms of their ideas and beliefs. So yes, we all bring sometimes unhealthy and yes, racist attitudes and beliefs into our workplace with us. Yeah. And, and I think what's important there is, is that I think we've become accepting uh, that this happens. Not to say we don't want to make things change, so to speak, but I think where we just uh, keep a mental note of it going on but not deal with anything because of, yes. of our livelihood. We, we wouldn't want to lose our jobs. Uh, again, that's just my personal uh, personal um, opinion on that. Yeah, so, you know, there's two sides to that, is that the status quo yeah. advantages mm-hmm. a certain group of people. So, of course, if you have power and privilege and authority, then you may not necessarily want to share or give any of that up. Yeah. And then on the other side, to your point, is that the newcomers into the work environment, initially, especially for a lot of older generations, we see that their main motivation and concern was assimilation, so fitting in, because ultimately their livelihoods depended upon the wage that they were getting. And so, yes, people do make concessions, they do compromise, they suffer in silence, and they find other ways to seek comfort or some type of camaraderie so that usually happens outside of the traditional formal structures of work which is why we often talk about things like you know the chats that happen in the lift or on the train on the way home or on your way to you know eat you know or pick up lunch Uh, and for minorities in the workplace these are conversations that we tend to have with friends and family 
and we do tend to try and park those at the door when we get to work. It's quite, it's quite unfortunate that we're having to take these uh, sentiments all the way back to our home and our families and having to discuss this. Yeah, I think what, what I'll go on to say to, in regards to that is what must senior leaders and HR teams do to reboot the conversation and genuinely tackle racial inequality? Sure. I mean, I think one of the first things is that businesses have to accept and acknowledge that they are an agent of systemic racism. And what I mean by that is that, unfortunately, up until now, they've been complicit in that. And so this idea that big business and corporations are not connected and have nothing to do with Mm. some of these, you know, wider structural issues is just untrue. Because when we start to unpick and unpack some of their systems and processes, Mm. again, they unfortunately inherently by design disadvantage groups of people. And so I think the first thing is is transparent acknowledgement that up until this point, maybe they have not addressed and really uncovered the bias that exists within their systems and structures. And that requires true leadership because to acknowledge that maybe you've dropped the ball or had a weak spot is it it takes courage. And that's true leadership to say, okay, we haven't done anything about this. I think we're past the point in saying they didn't notice because we're still seeing, you know, reviews and recommendations that are government sanctioned and backed, Mm. which gave clear guidance to businesses, especially with the UK labour workforce, as to what it is they should be doing to tackle racial inequality within business and commerce. And what we've seen in 2020 is that very little has changed. And so Mm. it wasn't that, that businesses were not aware of the problem. What we see from the research is that A, there was a lack of transparency and a willingness to acknowledge that they are a part of the problem. But B, because race, we know that only 38% of employers feel comfortable talking about race at work. And so what that means is the majority of employers have avoided the conversation. And what we've seen is that, you know, you look at HR, for example, they've acknowledged as a stakeholder that they have deprioritized the conversation about race because of how difficult race can be to discuss at yeah, work. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think when it comes to HR, we're known as gatekeepers. So where we yes. want to introduce uh, and implement change, we do know we have uh, a directive and we always have to sort of manage, uh, pretty much a term of being piggy in the middle. <laughs> so yes. where we want to put out information out there, where we want to sort of hold, have a helping hand in things, we do have people that we, we take orders from. Um, and, and not to say that's an excuse, but I think where HR should be heavily dominant on it is trying to force change. Uh, let's put things into best practice. Let's put out these proper procedures and policies. Let's, let's renew our practices. And I think that's where the conversation starts from. No, it's that's a really interesting point that you make there. I think, you know, again, 83% of HR is female and white. Okay, yeah. so the expectation that by themselves they will be able to uncover and identify diversity and inclusion equity nuances is unrealistic right so and and i think that to be to be fair yes they are piggy in the middle but also sometimes by proxy the, the demographic may not be aware of some of the challenges and dynamics at play and that isn't necessarily inherently their fault that requires a organization to give HR the necessary training or for them to engage external diversity and inclusion 
expertise so that they can understand how the systems and processes and policies that either they're perpetuating and delivering or indeed creating need to consider you know the necessary diversity and inclusion dynamics yeah it's really interesting yeah and and do do you think um introducing unconscious bias training programs are is a good initiative i'm intrigued to hear your response with regards to what your views about unconscious bias training programs yeah in the world sure um the short answer to that is no (laughs) i think that unconscious bias training again it doesn't allow for open transparent acknowledgement of the issue in the first place what is very true of most systemic racism when perpetuated in the workplace is that it's a habit it's not unconscious but it is a habit now because it's been happening for so long it's so ingrained in the way that we do things in the workplace that it's a habit what we need to do is start having the conversations which inherently will be uncomfortable for all about the way we do things and how unhealthy they actually are for everyone yeah okay and and i think when it comes to unconscious bias it's pretty much like a a, the social norm in which you know our brain sort of make those quick fire judgments about someone it's not the complete conclusive idea about that person but of course it's what the society accepted norms are um, disregarding mm. any level of rationality or good judgment uh, <laughs> it then crosses over to conscious because we do know what we say exactly um, exactly <laughs> and that's yeah. the point right so yeah. we may have been raised we may be in environments where there is a, a norm a way of doing things or a prevalent attitude towards a certain group of people. However, the moment those words leave our mouth or the moment that the policies we create are perpetuating those attitudes, that's when it becomes habitual and it is harmful. And we need to get to a point within organisations, as I say, true leadership will enable those conversations to happen in those boardrooms where we talk about okay this you know the way we are currently recruiting or the way we um currently internally promote does disadvantage certain groups of people that's why we don't retain bame employees past 24 months that's why we have educated experienced staff sitting in middle management who've never been promoted to senior management and yet when we look at who we have promoted they at best sometimes are mediocre employees. So where the unconscious bias part is what's happening when we're doing appraisals, when we're looking at pay rises, when we're looking at who we promote internally, when we look at those trends and patterns, that's where we see the habitual behavior that we're talking about. And we need to be, we need to get to a point where we have conscious leaders who are ready to be uncomfortable with looking at those trends and patterns in their company and supporting, giving HR the necessary training and then supporting them with carrying out what they've learned, even if it makes people feel uncomfortable. I've heard instances of, you know, when companies have been audited, for example, when it comes to pay gap. Um, you know, an ethnicity and gender pay gap, there will be individuals or teams of people that are on much higher wages than they should be. But because it's been happening for so long, 
the leaders are not necessarily willing to have those uncomfortable conversations about the fact, hey, actually the way we promoted has been unethical, really. And that's why there's such a disparity between our black employees and what they're earning and their job roles and those that we've had in certain positions for many years. But true leadership will mean that you have to be transparent and you have to be willing to have those conversations and support HR, for example, Mm. if it's them who's having to unravel it. Yeah, I think you made a key point there in being transparent in the gender pay gap. And I think not just from a gender point of view, but I think from an ethnicity standpoint, um, and I think where we have different sectors and there's a consistent role and it being reflective of, of a particular salary. So where you have in NHS, for instance, where you have a nurse, you have a, a high percentage of Afro-Caribbean um, nurses in this country, and they're on wages that and on salaries that are consistent throughout the years yeah. without no review, without no proper appraisals in place. And just from my background, for instance, my mum has been been in nursing for more than fifteen years, uh, and she's had to, you know, a thing called bank where she yeah. just had to log in her hours. You know, she's obviously been a permanent member of staff in the hospital, and she is now retired from a care home. Um, she's always been in a situation where she's done more than she's had to do, and which is fine because that's just passionate of what she does. But again, it's a matter of okay, well, pay someone according to their worth. You know, pay someone according to what they contribute to the organization, uh, and just don't don't create a um, a cohort of people based upon you know, their race, uh, the way they look. Uh, and I think that's just been a trend, especially just my personal experience anyway, given that my mum uh, has, has experience. Sure. So you're right. I mean, what you're speaking about there, again, is systems that have been in place for a very long time. And so, again, when we look at trends and patterns, and I think COVID has really revealed that, Absolutely. you know, the areas within which companies um, have a high number of maybe BAME employees and I use that term because that's the commonly used term you know um they are in lower paid positions they are usually on the front line so to speak and they're usually in positions that are public facing that have antisocial hours longer hours are more physical you know you look at the cleaning and the catering populations in a lot of corporations they tend to be people of color and sadly they tend to be people of color above a certain age and yet they they are in the lowest paid roles within that company although essential and that what have you know now we use the term key worker roles okay and and these are the things that companies need to start looking at and unfortunately even when we talk about unfortunately those statistics allow companies sometimes to say that we have a diverse workforce but when you drill down into those numbers Mm. the majority of the people of color that they have in the workplace are in the lowest paid jobs yes yes okay so we we now need to get to a point where we start saying hold on a minute you know across this country in the uk specifically only one percent of senior positions are held by women of color now black women specifically don't have a percentage right right right, and nothing has changed since i believe it's 2014 i think it's gone up by zero point percent in terms of the bane group as a whole moving through middle to senior management levels and that is across every sector in the uk amazing yeah so when you start looking at those statistics it becomes almost inexcusable now 
because there's been review and recommendation after review with clear action points for what corporations can be doing to change those statistics. And that is why things like unconscious bias training are ineffective because clearly yeah. it hasn't translated into action. Companies have not made um, DNI, as it were, a yeah. business performance metric. They should be measuring all of the stakeholders, including senior leaders, based on these statistics. These should be added into things like when they're looking at budget and profit in order to shift those dynamics, to move the needle in this area. It needs to be linked now to people's performance and their pay. Yeah, and I think positively, because this is a positive discussion, I think yes. more people in the senior positions, white males and white women, would need to think about that and be open to, to putting, yes. rolling out these procedures and suggestions in place, because of course, where it is a time where companies are releasing statistics based upon their recruitment, uh, based upon yes. their, their headcount and, and how many uh, Afro-Caribbean people that they employ. Uh, it is pretty much incredible. Um, and disappointing as well because of where we love to be celebrated and, and represented as, as high up there. We are seeing statistics and data that suggest that um, there is uh, an underrepresentation. Yeah, sure. I mean, look, and the thing is, the, the thing is, is that the only way is up, right? So we can be positive about it because it means that, you know, any movement would be progress. Yeah. <laughs> and that's yeah. the wonderful thing about it. So what we need is for senior leaders to embrace that as well, yeah. because it does mean that if they were to put some of these recommendations into effect, yeah. you will see progress. And therefore, next year, you will be able to report progress. Um, and what's very interesting is there's a lot of push and pull factors happening right now. We know the wider social climate, you yeah. know, of yeah. some Black Lives Matter protesting, mm. which has started now to percolate into industry. Yeah. Okay, these are not just street protests now. We also have the additional um, impact of what may become mandatory reporting when it comes to gender pay gap reporting, yeah. ethnicity yeah. pay gap reporting, yeah. and also the fact that the government has set certain deadlines now for there to be at least one non-white board member yeah. in the FTSE 100 and FTSE 250 companies. And I believe the deadlines are 2021 and 2024. Now, let's be honest, the 2021 one's probably going to be very difficult to yeah. meet that deadline now. Mm -hmm. And so... There are a lot of push and pull factors. In addition to that, we know that younger generations like the millennials, like mm. Generation Z, and then the next generation, which is called Generation Alpha, right. they are generations that have different expectations of their employers now. There's something now called employee activism. And so what we're seeing is that lots of employers are expecting companies to live the values that are on the website, that are on the boardroom walls, that are in the lifts. They want to see every single day that companies yeah. are living those values. And so there's a lot of impetus and incentive for companies if they want to retain bright young talent, much right. less attract it. Right. There's a lot of incentive there for them to really think about how they can move the needle internally when it comes to diversity and inclusion. Yeah, I think going into your area of expertise, and I think there are a few questions that cover with sure. So given your areas of expertise, DNI, who do you consult with when you've had to deal with prejudice and race in the workplace? How do you deal with that? So do you mean when I personally experience uh, yeah. in the so workplace? If, yeah. So that's really interesting, actually. And that <laughs> is an interesting question because 
<laughs> although my company provides um, <laughs> this type exactly, of Exactly, yeah. <laughs> you'd be surprised the number of instances actually in the interactions about working with them that we, yeah. you know, obviously are exposed to, um, mm. you know, manifestations of systemic racism. Um, yeah. Things like negotiating pricing for work is probably a good example. Um, and also terminology right something that's really common sometimes is the terminology that can be used i've sat through meetings where i've been referred to or black people have been referred to as colored you know just right. last month yeah. for the entire yeah. meeting um <laughs> we've had instances wow. in which stakeholders we might have been talking to have referred to what they deem to be acceptable racial stereotyping and jokes mm -hmm. that they're happy yeah. to share on the call um, and <laughs> during their team meetings. So in those instances, in the course of my business, I, I don't necessarily raise them because the whole point, the whole essence of what we do is to help these organizations. So in many ways, if we do experience some racism, that is just indicative of the fact that we, we need to help them, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, what can I do? I can't be too surprised by that. Right. Um, you know, so sometimes the buzzer, you know, needs to be pressed. Mm. And, you know, we may have a little bit of a conversation about acceptable terms, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So, in other words, you're your own doctor. So you would have to Absolutely. apply the, the plaster <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. mend yourself back into place and then push on with the practices that you, you go by. And, you know, it's interesting to have a sort of um, you be your own healer yes yeah. i mean it's yeah. interesting you talk about being your own healer because um so you know one of the things i would say is that it's a bit like and i have this conversation with my peers all the time a bit like you know counselors have counseling right they're yeah. required as yes, part of, of their practice and so yeah. i would say we experience very similar things so we have that kind of internal mechanism that allows right. us to reflect and download on our learnings and experiences because of right. course it is a bit of an interesting dynamic in that i am a black woman and in yeah. my practice of dni i don't allow or bring my lived experience to affect and impact the way i practice right when sure, i'm working sure. with clients but of course sure. as a black woman unfortunately i might personally experience um some of 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 this behavior maybe or attitudes in the course of my practice so it's quite an interesting dynamic and that mm. does mean that as a responsible practitioner i make sure that i have my counseling so to speak which allows mm. me to keep my practice clear and and allow it to have its integrity and credibility so that yeah. I'm not allowing anything personal to impact the way I practice. Sure. Uh, and given the bodies uh, organisation that govern HR practices, uh, do you feel that has been enough work covered in breaking silos, stereotypes, um, in harbouring an effective working culture and tackling these issues? So that's another great question, because in our research for our white paper, which is about to be published, you know, one thing that was very clear was that the stakeholders don't necessarily work so well together at the moment. Okay. Okay. So they, they operate too independently. So HR, DNI, um, the, you know, the employment resource groups or the network yeah. that might exist within corporations, um, they operate too independently. And actually, 
they need combined authority to be able to make progress. So you'll find the networks, the BAME networks, as it were, don't actually have any authority. So they can come up with the ideas, but they don't have authority to do anything about that stuff. And then HR are trying to juggle what the network needs as well as their other responsibilities. And so you find they just don't have the time, resource, and sometimes understanding to make the necessary changes. And then DNI sometimes is viewed as like a nice to have, you know? It's just like, you know, oh, they deal with things like well-being. And so what we need is all of those groups really to be working together and become a little bit more codependent to change the Mm. culture of these stakeholders and therefore the perception of them from the wider employee group so that they can be mobilized as a unit with the Mm. senior management buy-in and support to start seeing a shift happening in the workplace. Yeah, I, I mean, I do find it interesting that DNI it hasn't merged with HR. And I think we just need to to come together uh, and to you know, have these discussions rather than it just be DNI. You know, they they talk about what they talk about. Yes. Yeah. HR, we deal with the the generic sort of inquiries and, and yeah and matters. Yeah, absolutely. I think DNI needs to be a part of the DNA of every stakeholder group in a company. Yeah. That's the point. Yeah. So DNI shouldn't be separate. It should be a part. The attitude, the culture, the mission of mm. DNI should be in in you know really embedded in everything else in a company. So that's why it's so important. You know, leadership programs, managerial training programs, induction programs, yeah. right? Yeah. Even the very creation of your pay scales. For example, and your appraisal process, DNI is an inherent part of those things. Yeah. So that's why we yeah. see sometimes the disconnected and fragmented approach to DNI, and that's why we don't see the results that we want to see after we come up with an initiative because it often exists within a silo. Yeah, yeah, it does. And I think just perfectly going into this question, um, a large part of complexities and diversity that organisations feel baffingly confident that the problem has now pretty much been co-signed to the past. So perhaps by installing consultants to tackle issues or elect the black professional to manage their DNI strategy. Um, what's your views about that? Yeah. Is it things in the past or do you think that it's still, it's still a, uh, a tick box exercise, so to speak? Look, and this is really interesting. We all say tick box exercise. And I guess what what I gather when people are talking about tick box exercises that is the is the feeling that this is just being done because it needs to be done and it needs to be done quickly so we can say we've done yeah. it. But yeah. In, yeah. inherently, it's okay that it is a tick box because it is something okay. that needs to be done, right? So yeah, okay. I think yeah. it's the yeah. attitude that goes, unfortunately, behind this. We want, you know, employees want to feel as if their employer cares and is doing it because they believe it's the right thing to do. Um, and I think yeah. when it comes to engaging consultants, you know, yeah. The, the, ideally, what you want to happen is that you want to ex- engage external expertise to help you create, a, a one, identify and assess where you're at now, where you need to be, and then create and assess, um, create a framework, create guidelines that your internal mm-hmm. stakeholders can take hold of and deliver really that's the way to make sure that it's not just a tick box exercise and that it actually affects in a positive way your workforce Mm. i think the problem is when sometimes consultants are engaged it's as a knee-jerk reaction it's as a one-off 
you know it needs to be really integrated into the overall way you're doing yes. things internally and you need to yes. be engaging and including hr so that whoever's going to be left responsible after that consultant finishes that piece of work or project needs yep. to be involved yep. <laughs> from the beginning so that they understand what's happening they can give input they can give so for example i always say i my company are the dni experts but you as hr and senior leaders are experts on your company yeah that's yeah. where our expertise come together and so that's why you need both of those mm. parties from the beginning so that whatever work whatever guidelines are created whatever policies are created are understand your company's needs and resources and where you're trying to get to so i think that's where we see the problems that you know sometimes again the work is done in isolation yeah and then just just going on to uh the workshop that you currently run mm. um hundred white women you just like to just briefly um touch base on, on how this came about yeah sure so the hundred white women project is really interesting it was it's really about taking a radical you know, approach and, and look at race in the workplace, okay? And discussing race. Because here's yeah. the thing, most sectors, we see it with our eyes, but also the statistics tell us that they are predominantly white. We know that HR right. is 83% female and white. And so instead of going into corporations and saying to them, hey, you need to do more for your BAME employees, what we do is we go into corporations and say, hey, how can we shift the mindset of your predominantly white workforce? And so instead of companies viewing their BAME employees and these targets and deadlines as a problem to solve, they're thinking about it as an underutilized resource. And when we have underutilized resources, we invest in them. But in order to do that, you need to change the mindset and the understanding of your predominantly white workforce, particularly when you're looking at management um, and, and then the stakeholders so that they understand this is an underutilized resource. How could you start using it? How can they be more productive and profitable for the company? So it was really a radical, you know, approach that we take in terms of helping corporates understand why they do need to invest in this training and why it is exactly for them if they have a predominantly white workforce. Because what we see with some companies is that they will say, well, I've only got five black employees, for example. So why would we invest in this training? Which is ironic. Well, that's the whole reason why you should. And so that's where the 100 White Women Project came out from. We started initially by literally taking 100 women through an anti-racism workshop and teaching them what allyship in the workplace looks like. And then we started extending that. And the mission is, of course, to teach as many, um, you know, predominantly white workforces as possible about anti-racism and allyship in the workplace. Because the, the, the reality is, is that changing processes and systems will take a long time because they didn't come about overnight but what we can do is work on the mindsets the attitudes the beliefs and the ideas of individuals who operate within those structures and individuals who have influence authority and power and decision making power if you think about it gender diversity has been on a part of the conversation for much longer than race because we know it's a more comfortable conversation to have but that means that white women for example will get into the boardrooms before any other race yes, okay? Yes, okay why don't we yeah, use that yeah. to our advantage 
if we've got mostly white women in HR, if white women are going to ascend into senior management positions and into the boardrooms faster than other races, if we were to help them understand allyship, they would be able to make changes much faster because then they understand what allyship is. And so when they ascend into those other rooms, into those other positions, the way they influence policies and procedures will be much healthier and will take into account BAME employees. And so that's what we do with the 100 yeah, White Women yeah. Project. Let's work on the workforce we have now. Let's work on the right. people who are ascending into positions of power. And then we will see healthier attitudes start filtering down much quicker. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that you've uh, managed to run uh, these strategies and, and, and change the perceptions of how um organizations are run and of course you do have in your position probably experience that a lot are open to uh, taking in these uh, valuable lessons and, and implementing that into their, yes. the, the culture of the organization and you do have some who come in who already will probably know that you know i am doing what i'm supposed to be doing what is good to just have it you know, listening to your um, perspective and, and your ideas and, and things do you find that you get frustrated that your sessions are sometimes not heard so where you have you know the hundred white women you have some of them who just turn up and just i don't take on the valuable content of actually what you deliver i'll be honest post covid we we don't see that often most of the people that come to those workshops most of the companies that approach us they want to know more they're in a place where they're willing to learn and listen and they're aware that there's a lot that they don't know and that is really commendable there will always be individuals who don't want to change right that's just the reality and actually the 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 reality of that is is that that's why we need to be doing this work because we need the balance the tipping point so that most workforces have people who do want to change and then you'll have a minority of individuals maybe who aren't there yet and that's okay it's not ideal but it will have to do and that's why this work is even more important so i would say you know it's not you know in terms of the practice of what we do there's really anything that frustrates us because right, actually right. the the more work that needs to be done the better we can the more value we can offer that organization <laughs> essentially yeah. Yeah. actually an organization yeah. that is really unaware of how much work needs to be done is actually <laughs> a joy to work with because yeah. it means yeah. they let you be the expert and they let you really get to know who they are and you can make yeah. practical yeah. tangible suggestions and put plans in place that they have a much better mm. chance of actually yeah. carrying out to be quite honest with you because of the fact that they've got so much work to do it's it's the unconscious bias you know type of client that is actually much harder to work with in reality (laughs) because they may not be willing to acknowledge yet that they don't there's things that they don't know or things that they need to change i'm just going to um put across a quick fire point um now of course we've we've mentioned bane throughout this discussion Mm. do you feel that term should be scrapped do you think there should be Afro-Black Caribbean professionals uh, issues uh, and Asian issues dealt with separately, or do you think it's just under one umbrella? I mean, here's here's the challenge. Because we don't view, we don't think enough in terms of organisational health and healthy workplace culture, this is why we're at a point where we have to start creating filters and buckets for different sets of people. 
If we just acknowledge the fact that as human beings, we all occupy multiple identities and ultimately we all want to feel safe, happy and fulfilled at work, we probably wouldn't have to spend so much time talking about these definitions and labels and what that therefore means in practice in terms of underinvestment in 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 the progress of said groups now i think that we've come to a point generally speaking where no one sees the benefit of bane as a term because what it means is is that the the where the real needs are they go unnoticed and sometimes willfully and that's back to that point about data at the moment with the bane term we can we do have you know companies reporting that they have a diverse workforce when when you drill down to it they don't because everything mm, other yeah. than white English yeah. really is Bane. Of course. Right? Absolutely. And so yeah. of course you can say you have a diverse workforce when in reality that could mean you have no black employees. Yeah. For example. Yeah. Um and that's what yeah. we're able to say that for example black women do not have a percentage. There are no black women in senior positions in any sector in the UK in twenty twenty. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Zero. Yeah. yeah. Right. So BAME as a term is totally ineffective for data purposes, as well as really being able to identify where companies need to be investing and why we're at a point now where, you know, they're so exposed when it comes to their black employees. So I think overall, the term is just ineffective. Right. And most people and that includes the people who supposedly fall under that umbrella are not benefiting from that label at all. Right. Got you. In terms of recruitment, uh, what processes do you feel needs to be changed for there to be a fair reflection um, and an equal opportunity for black professionals in the workplace? I, I think, I mean, if you're talking about quicker wins, you know, I think that, as I say, I, ref, I kind of referred to it earlier, internal talent development is something that should be concentrated on. Absolutely. You know, here's the yeah. thing, there's two things here, internal talent development, because a lot of workplaces have black employees or BAME employees, but they just don't promote them. Yeah. So while you're going out to externally recruit, sometimes you're leapfrogging individuals who've got the necessary experience. Mm -hmm. And so I would definitely say that companies need to start looking at their internal talent development and really honestly looking at the, the, the demographic of their workforce and actually they'll find that they have underutilized resource right there and, and actually that's cheaper it's cheaper to develop the talent internally than it might be to you know do a full external recruitment drive for example so, especially during these covid times absolutely. so i would definitely say that's the first thing they need to be much more honest and de-bias the internal talent development programs and right. processes that they have and that will require them, obviously, to train their, 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 their management and the individuals who are overseeing recruitment, internal recruitment, to de-bias mm. that process as much yeah. as possible. And then when it comes to recruitment, whether they're using external recruitment agencies or, again, they're using an internal team, um, it's important that they have anti-racism training that is specific to recruitment yeah. practices. Yeah. That yeah. is a key point here. You know, people don't know what they don't know. And so having that training is going to be essential for them to understand how some of their processes might be disadvantaging um, certain groups before they even apply or once they do apply. Yeah. And I think where um, 
and correct me if I'm wrong here, and this is just me openly speaking out loud. Sure. There are roles designed for um, white employees who do fantastic at what they do. So I'll give you an example. Um, an area of technology, you have a high statistics on white employees uh, in, that, in, in those specific roles. Uh, do you feel that roles should be designed for race uh, based upon their education background, um, what they can actually deliver to that role? You know, and it goes way back from the education. So it's if they've attended Harvard or they've attended Oxford or Cambridge, they're more subject to delivering uh, a particular uh, role to a perfect execution of what their senior leaders would, would like to execute them. And then when you have the admin side of perspective, maybe a black professional perhaps maybe is more subject to delivering on that front. So do you feel that roles are designed um, according to uh, the way we look uh, race-wise? So there's a lot to unpack in that question that you've asked. There is. Uh, <laughs> there is. Because of the variables that you, you mentioned. Yeah. yeah. The, 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 yeah. The, 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 the issue here is that this is why systemic racism is so essentially destructive because... Mm-hmm. It is because of systemic racism that we can even think that certain roles are better suited to people because of their race. Race, And it it is because of systemic racism that we can even think, well, maybe that's because certain white employees have gone to certain schools. They've acquired certain degrees. Those are products of systemic racism in itself. Because Mm -hmm. when you look at other countries, if you look at other continents, in fact, like Africa or the Caribbean, Within those continents, they've got some of the best universities in the world. Within those continents, they have individuals who are far more educated than individuals in in the Western world, as it were. Right? So if you looked in the context of Africa, there are people of African heritage who are the ones doing data, you know, analyst jobs, data technician, they're scientists, they're all of those things. And so race does not correlate to ability and to, and uh, what's the word being inclined to a particular job or sector those yeah. things are products of systemic racism those yeah. beliefs and also then now we can look with our eyes and think oh no there is more of a certain type of person on that particular course and therefore there's a more of that type of person in that job but that is because of things like economics that is because of yeah. socio an environment, not because of inherent genetic DNI racial ability. Sure. Does yeah. that make sense? And so, but if mm-hmm. we're looking at the current labour workforce, mm-hmm. it probably is so that unfortunately certain groups have higher numbers of people with X yeah. qualification, and therefore yeah. they are more suited to jobs that are being advertised yeah. right now. Yeah. Yeah. So yes, you know, we look at that maybe in the current workforce that might be true. But having said that. Mm-hmm. We see that on the flip side, companies aren't necessarily recruiting from non-traditional sources. And so therefore, you won't see the visual demographic change because they are recruiting from the same Russell universities, Oxbridge universities, or Mm. the same set of initiatives that only really, you know, maybe students who go to independent or private schools are a part of. You know, that is why systemic racism is so destructive because it it gives us results like this in a country like the UK. Whereas, as I say, if you look at other continents where 
you know, race isn't necessarily the defining factor. There isn't an issue with the types of roles that are being carried out. You know, you look at someone like Jamaica, they've got one of the most stable stock markets in the world. Right, 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 right. right. So it just shows you um, it's not really about race. Unfortunately, um, it's, it's really about all of those other factors that affect the way the workforce starts to look. If we look, for example, at people who are migrating from other countries into the UK in certain fields, they are more than qualified to take engineering roles, etc. What we find yeah. because yeah. of systemic racism, that they're unable to get those roles because they're not hired into those roles. The amount of times when I was in banking, when I used to work in banking compliance, that was my foundational career and training. And, you know, I would go into the bathroom, for example, and and there would be a cleaner in there who's over 50, who has several children working day and night. And she mm. would tell you that back home, she was a midwife. She was running the ward. She's delivered yeah. hundreds of babies yeah. in her lifetime, yeah. right? Yeah. But when she came to England, she couldn't get that job. Yeah, yeah. So we see where the disparities start to show. You meet a number of people who are security guards. And many people listening to this might now might think those are stereotypical roles. But let's just be real. Many security guards, you'll find out they're a scientist or they were an engineer before they came to England. But they were unable to get those roles. So this is where we start seeing how systemic racism that we talk about in the workplace starts to show. And I think uh, we we could be here all day (laughs) positively discussing about this. Um, I'd like to just get your last input with regards to um, engagement, introducing engagement sessions for black professionals within the workplace. Now, from my perspective is there is an increase year upon year that black professionals do go through a mental health breakdown, so to speak. And I think they're the highest high statistic out there that uh, we are more likely to to suffer from depression, uh, suffer from any other uh, long-standing diseases as well. Do you feel that our leaders uh, and our senior directors are keeping an eye or making reference to practices, best practices in getting the best out of black professionals and helping and supporting black professionals who who suffer from these um, illnesses. So that's interesting. I mean, if you think about it, ironically, mental health in the workplace has leapfrogged talking about race in the workplace, which is hilarious. Um, (laughs) um, But even then, when you look at mental health being discussed, that took a long time. And a lot of organisations are still struggling with talking about mental health comfortably. Because again, it would require them to look at their workplace culture, because that effectively is what has the most impact on people's mental health at work. And so I think we're still not there yet necessarily in terms of discussing and understanding how workplace culture is impacting the mental health of black employees when you add that into the mix. So it's understandable that organizations aren't quite there yet right? Because yeah. this is a totally new area in general. And and actually, one of the things I'd like to also point out that we talk about the impact that all of these things have on BAME employees and women, mm-hmm. but that doesn't yeah. mean that white males are particularly happy right now either in the workplace. There are yeah. Yeah. countless studies that are showing that even white males aren't quite happy with the way our workplace culture is. And that yeah. is a further reason to do more work in this area in general. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think 
you know, it's very sad to think that people's mental health is being impacted by workplace culture, you know, we spend a lot of our time at work. And so it's sad to think that actually, you know, people are deeply impacted by the things that they're experiencing um, at work. And and this is why I think from an organisational point of view, it is important to invest in, you know, the right resources to make sure that your employees are as happy and safe and comfortable at work as possible so that ultimately they are as productive as possible, which means your business will be more profitable. Yeah. And I think what is actually really interesting here is that what are we doing to have these suggestions put forward, you know, with the help of occupational health therapists, Mm. counsellors in place. And I think where we've created this this approach of, well, we're lucky to have a job. Yes. Um, You're privileged to have a job. You're privileged to be here. It puts a negative yes. cloud on the fact that this person is actually going through something, <laughs> yeah. um, and how can we support that rather than it being you're lucky that you're here. You know, yes, um, exactly. Yeah. Absolutely, and that's yeah. the challenge, right? Because ultimately, every single person in this climate at the moment is concerned about their welfare, their livelihood, and being able to yeah. pay the bills. And if you yeah. carry that burden with you every single day, it does impact how whether you speak up it does impact whether you say hey i need help yeah and then there's an extra challenge if actually the reason why you need help is largely because of your workplace culture (laughs) and so it's a very challenging um conversation to have as a black employee because there are so many dynamics and there's a lot of pressure you know internally and externally to keep your job to be liked by your colleagues, to not rock the boat, to not be labelled as a troublemaker, to just Mm. sit down, head down, and do your work. Yeah, Um, It brings us on to our recommendations for our senior leaders to positively take on board as a whole this discussion. Um, What do you feel HR, senior managers, senior leaders should do to bridge the gap of uh, racial inequality moving forward? The, the first and best step they can take is decide that they're going to be open to having the conversation yeah. and engage external experts to do so. If you want change, you're going to have to do something different to what you've been doing before. And so yeah. that means being ready and open for some discomfort and opening up to, you know, discussing and exploring what really needs to be changed. Yeah. Uh, In terms of our procedures and policies, do you feel that we should redesign them, remodel them uh, with the inclusion of policies that protect people a lot more in the workplace? Could that be a recommendation that you probably co-sign as well? I mean, ultimately, there will be some organisations that do need to redesign them. You know, unfortunately, some things can't be fixed. They just need to be, you know, done away with and recreated or redesigned in the first place. And let's be honest, that happens anyway. You know, with every new generation of workforce, they want to do things a different way. And so we, we tend to find that evolution happens anyway. It's just that what's the challenge is to do it with this lens of diversity and inclusion and not necessarily because for example we need to make more money right Mm, or there's an opportunity to make more money change is always happening when it comes to policies and procedures all the time but accommodate finances yeah and so what we need to be brave enough now and courageous enough to do as leaders 
is do it within the, the lens of DNI because whatever happens, you will have to anyway, because of all those push and pull factors that are happening with mandatory reporting, with newer, younger generations coming into the workforce and the use yeah. of social media of course, right now. Yeah. Companies are going to be in a bit of a tight spot because unless they initiate that internally themselves and get yeah. a little bit ahead of the curve from a place of transparency and inclusive leadership, unfortunately what starts to happen is there's this kind of perception built that they're doing it because it's a tick box activity or because yeah. now they have to because of maybe threat of scandal or whistleblowing and we want mm -hmm. organizations to avoid that right we want organizations to keep yeah. positioning themselves from a place of true leadership with integrity so that you can have employees that respect your values and respect yeah. what the company is doing as a whole yeah. And I think what, what recommendation I would like to suggest as well is supporting and paving the way for black men in, in the workplace. Um, in my field, I don't think I've actually come across a lot of black men in HR. And it goes way back, uh, even from my first degree when I did HR and business, uh, yes. 2007, um, 13 or 14 odd years ago. And I felt that, okay, I do belong in HR. Um, I feel that this is an area of, of that I'm really passionate in. Um, but I didn't really recognise anyone around me, so to speak. But I think that, that really wasn't an issue and a problem at the time because, of course, naive old me <laughs> were just really keen and just gathering the knowledge and, and hopefully the experience when I do finish my uh, my degree. And then I went on to the Masters. And I felt, this is really interesting. We have mm. a room full of people who don't look like me. And um, especially not for my gender. How can that change? Mm. Uh, and it then became an issue for me. But why are we not represented on this platform? Why are we not celebrated? Because I'm pretty much sure there are a lot of black men out there. We, we need our voices to be heard in the workplace. Yeah. Uh, and I think what companies should be looking to do is have all these initiatives in place of, you know, if you're a black, black male, and you have experience in HR, or even you're, you want to get into HR, you know, we are ready to help you. Uh, and, and, and that could just come in different sort of practices because, um, of course, I mean, I've, like I said, I've never been in, in, this, in a situation where I've um, been having conversations about, about it. And it's really interesting to actually have these conversations with another black male who yes. works in the HR. Um, and important also who is also in a senior position that come in as well to get their perspective and knowledge about how we can actually implement uh, aspiring black uh, men in, in HR to come forward because of course where we do talk of the future how the future will look like we want to be able to sort of provide the knowledge uh, and provide an arm around the shoulder so to speak to help people uh, that look like me and from my gender as well to be in these positions uh, and, and hopefully one day be in a senior position in in, uh, in helping companies move forward because we do have the knowledge we do have the experience but um, it, all, all it takes is a is conversation like, like Jack mentioned mm. uh, and, and all it takes is the, the, the practices in enabling uh, these um, developments happening. And of course, slowly, slowly but surely, we'll, we'll get there. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think you, it's, this is, you, it's a really important point. And I think what that will require, those two things, you have to prepare the workforce i.e. create inclusive, healthy workplaces to be able to welcome new people, especially yeah. like black men into HR, because traditionally yeah. you haven't been there. 
So there's, there's work to be done on both sides. I actually think that creating an inclusive workplace will, will, will help massively solve that problem because more black male HR practitioners will apply for those roles. But if you don't see it as a place where you will be accepted, valued and recognized, you're not going to apply. That's the reality. And sure, secondly, sure. the other point is when, when all of our research about the experience of black women in management positions in the UK, yep. and I suspect it's very similar to black males, um, is that the workforce in general is not used to taking instructions or directions from mm. black women. And what we find about certain positions in you know, workplaces, especially if they're managerial or they're HR, is that people you know, predominantly white workforces do struggle to take direction from black managers. It's something that comes out time and time again in the research and data that's out there. And this is why that anti-racism training, that de-biasing mm-hmm. of our processes and systems and our attitudes in the workplace is so important because yeah. there's no point in putting someone in a position where their team is not going to give them the buy-in or support. And a lot of the time that is just quite simply because of their conditioning, their backgrounds, in that they're never used to having to take direction or work with or work under somebody mm. of a different race, much less a black man or woman. Yeah, that's powerful. Powerful there. And I think um, once we have these systems in place, which hopefully, uh, you know, what has happened in recent times has sparked conversations of these things happening. And there are changes up there. There are changes that I am seeing, which I'm grateful for. And I just think that, I just hope that this is not um, a period, so to speak. Uh, I hope this is longstanding. I hope this continues to be part of um, uh, these changes moving forward uh, permanently uh, and not just uh, an event happening and then it's sparking the, the conversations you know, working synchronizedly in, in that in that positive trajectory uh, in, in the workplace. Yes. So thank you so much, Shanti, for this episode. I really do appreciate your your time, uh, your experience, and and giving a lot of powerful content and insight to how um, our audience can take um, from today. And of course, those that are in senior positions uh, who are listening to this, this is obviously a um, platform for you to take upon these powerful messages uh, and uh, introducing to these to your to your workplace because that's what the discussion is about but positively having discussion uh you know discussions that you will probably were not uh, aware of uh, or not open to but positively sharing our experiences what we feel that is a recommendation what we feel that we has been happening in the workplace for some time and us joining our hands together and saying okay well let's help each other out here um so thank you so much, Shanti. And I'm pretty much sure at some point we'll do another collab in the near future. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Hi, thanks for listening to this episode of the World of Work podcast. To learn more about what we do, please check out our website, www.worldofwork.io, where you can read some great articles, learn more about the seminars and courses that we deliver, or even support us if you wish through our Patreon page. That's www.worldofwork.io. Thank you.